Well, in preparation this week, looking at this whole narrative of Lazarus and the grave, I think I wrote about seven sermons and I was prepared to deliver them all to you right now. And then I started cutting and fashioning and realized there was more I had to leave out than what I could possibly include in here. This passage is so rich. I mean, I've been reading it for a long time and have, have even this time around picked up new insights from it. This is the seventh of seven signs that are in John's gospel. And John fashions his gospel very well. And this is a, there's a prog- progression happening here where Jesus is more and more being revealed. His majesty is becoming more apparent. Whereas he was just seen as a good teacher and then maybe as a special kind of rabbi, we now see him as the son of God here, the one who has life within his own self. He is able to bring life. And it's fitting that we would be in this text today because next week is Holy Week. So next Sunday is Palm Sunday and then the following seven days, it's Holy Week. And so the the progressive revelation of the, the liturgy lines up with the progress, progressive revelation of Jesus in John's gospel. So the seven signs go from, I'm a little bit reluctant to say, easier miracles to this one. So it starts out with a wedding in Cana where he turns kind of privately on the side, he turns some water into wine. Pretty impressive. Then he uh, heals somebody who's got a fever. Also impressive. Then there's a crippled person whose legs don't work. He restores that person. Pretty good. Then he feeds 5,000 people from a couple of loaves and fishes. Even better. Then he walks on water. Now that's just kind of awesome. And then he heals a man who's been born blind. And that's the sixth sign. And then this one which I would say is the second greatest of things that he does. He raises Lazarus back to life, which is second only to Easter when Jesus himself dies and then rises to new life. And what we're seeing here is that he is far bigger than we realize. He is bigger and we underestimate him. So this morning, this, this is where I'm going to narrow down this text. I'm, I'm looking at this idea. Just by being himself, just by being who he is, Jesus both stresses our faith, and he strengthens it. He stresses our faith, and he strengthens it. I want to look at those two things in this text. And I'm I'm going to start back a little further than where Sam did in that reading. I'm going to start back at verse 6. There is an unexpected word, so, in there. And what happens is Lazarus gets sick, and they send word to Jesus. He's not far from where they were. He was just in that town, and he fled to the north, and they send word, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. And John tells us that Jesus, he loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. So, and then what comes after that? So, he spent a lot of time with them in Bethany and often ate dinner at their house. So, he let Mary sit at his feet while he was teaching instead of doing the dishes. So, he sent them a birthday card every year. Fill in the blank. But you don't expect what is going to actually be written there. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he stayed where he was two days longer. That was his response to their request for him to come and heal their sick brother. He stayed. He delayed two days longer. Now, let me ask you this. Every one of us have had trials in our lives and circumstances that were hard and things that we needed help with, and we cry out to God for those things, and sometimes he stays two days longer, and we think, Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he can't help. Maybe he's not listening. We fill in a whole bunch of things from our perspective and we attribute these to God and we start to question his goodness. And this text does the exact same thing. 
But what it's doing actually is it is stressing their faith. It is testing it. It is putting it in a crucible and heating it up to see if it will get stronger, which is Jesus' goal actually. It's not unusual for people to have that kind of a reaction to God delaying. Consider King David who wrote this psalm, Psalm 13. And this is David, by the way, who's anointed with the Holy Spirit when he was set aside to be king. He's David who killed Goliath. The boy took on the giant. This is David who's God's king. He's known many victories. But he says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my own soul? and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long will my enemy exalt over me? And thus it goes on. So King David was asking that same question. Where are you, God? I need help, and you don't seem to be coming. What's wrong? Well, one of the things that's important to recognize is there is always more going on in our lives, in the world, than we are aware of. We don't have the proper perspective. I think I might have told you before about this, but Brent McHugh, our missionary in Spain now, but he was in Turkey, sent me a gift one time. And it's a little, it's a bookmarker, it's about this big, and it's made to look like a Persian rug. And it is uh, kind of like a nice needlepoint thing. And in the Farsi language, it has the Lord's Prayer on it. And it's really pretty, unless you turn it over. On the other side, it's just a jumble of thread, and it doesn't look good, and it makes no sense, it's kind of chaotic. And I bring that up because it's such a helpful metaphor for us. You know, if you think of the, the, the ceiling or the clouds as that tapestry, God is looking down on the picture. He is perfectly, precisely needlepointing, and we're looking up at the threads that are hanging loose and dangling underneath it and just don't seem to make sense. And we have to remember that he has that vantage point. He sees the whole thing, and there's a lot more going on than just our problem. It's actually not just about us. But one of the things that we do know that he is interested in is making disciples and strengthening our faith. He's interested in maturing us. That's part of Jesus' agenda, and it's explicit. So in verse 14, he says, after a little discussion about whether or not Lazarus is dead or asleep, he finally says, our friend Lazarus has died. He's dead, and I'm going to wake him up. And then he says, and I am glad that I was not there for your sake so that you might believe. I'm glad that I was not there, because if he was there, he would have healed him before the death. But because this whole thing is going to transpire, it is going to test their faith, and it's going to strengthen it. It's an opportunity for them to believe, to ex exercise that belief, and go with Jesus up to a dangerous place, and watch what he does, and, and see how he works. If any of you have done any kind of fitness training whatsoever, or tried to get faster, let's say, at running a, a race or a marathon, or you want to beef up in your muscles. If you do the exact same routine every single day, you don't get stronger. Anybody knows this, and CrossFit has, has cashed in on this. You have to keep changing the routine and putting new stresses on those muscles. It tears the fibers, and then they rebuild stronger. That's basic exercise physiology. Well, it works for faith, too, that if you just keep doing the exact same thing, your faith kind of stays like this. It's when it's under pressure that it grows. It needs to be tested in order to be exercised. And the Lord is interested in doing that for us. So he's going to stress our faith from time to time. And just by virtue of who he is as the majestic one, the savior of the world, his, his glory, his agenda for his creation is such that he loves us too much to just leave us where we are. He's going to stretch us. He's going to challenge and pressure us. 
And in this tapestry here that he is painting in this section, he's doing a number of things all at once. One, he's making Lazarus a marked man and a very effective witness. Because of this account, Lazarus became a mark for the Jews. So many people were trusting in Jesus that they decided, we've not, we've not only got to kill Jesus, we've got to kill Lazarus. He's a liability to us because so many people know what happened. It was a big public miracle. Now imagine this. You go into the hospital for a routine procedure and something goes way off and you die for 15 minutes. You're on the table, you know, the attending physician gives the time of death, and they're starting to clean up the room, and it just so happens that Gus, just so happens that Gus is in the hospital, he's doing some rounds, he's got his anointing oil, he's praying for people, he hears about it, he goes in, he prays for you, and you actually revive. Now, you are automatically a powerful witness in that hospital. All the nurses and doctors are going to come in and go, I was standing there when they signed the, the death time. What happened? Where were you for 15 minutes? What's it like on the other side? Who is that pastor that, and who's he praying to? Where is this power coming from? All these questions are coming and you're not even looking for them. That happened as part of this account that made Lazarus really good at giving a testimony. That's just one of the things that Jesus was accomplishing here. Another thing is that he was revealing his glory to Martha and Mary and the disciples. They saw him as the one who could do miracles. They thought it was by asking God to do miracles. They now see him as the son of God himself. He is divine. They understood something they couldn't see before this. And then another thing that was accomplished here is the die was cast. Jesus was going to die. Whereas in his first miracle, the wedding at Cana, where he turns the water into wine, Jesus said to his mother, why bother me? My time has not yet come. He's talking about the cross. Now with Lazarus's death and um, res or resuscitation or back, being brought back to life. Now it is actually Jesus's time. And this is going to make the Jews set their mind. Their hearts are now hardened. He must die. It is necessary for one, prophesied the high priest Caiaphas, it's necessary for one to die for the whole nation. And they made plans from that very moment to put him and Lazarus to death. All that was part of the tapestry of what's going on in this two-day delay that Jesus had. What about specifically the disciples? They, they knew Jesus' plan because he said, I'm going to wake him up. I'm going to go and bring him back to life. So they were watching from the outside this whole thing unfold. But it was stressful for their faith too because the reason that they had left Bethany was because just prior to this, Jesus was threatened. The Jews were trying to stone him and he snuck out of the city and then fled to the north. And so they say in, in what is it, verse 8, Lord, they were just trying to stone you down there. And you want to go back there? What's wrong with you? And then Thomas, who's often called Doubting Thomas, has a huge uh, word of faith here in verse 16. He's, so Thomas called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go with him that we may die as well. So he was ready to die, but he assumed that's what was going to happen. And so they were a little bit afraid. The question is, are we willing to follow this Jesus into danger or not? Their faith was being tested once again. And he'd done that to them in many ways for three years. So here's a question for you. How is your faith being tested right now? If the truth of who Jesus is means that your faith will be stressed and tested, that's just a part of discipleship, how is it being tested right now? It might be that you're going through some kind of crazy sickness. I see the cards that are turned in every week. I've been praying for you. There's a lot of cancer in this church. There's a lot of mental illness. There's a, there's a lot of addiction. There's a lot of really bad things. 
Faith might be tested in another way. Maybe there's a relationship that's really being strained. Maybe somebody who's not a believer is starting to put pressure on you because you are one. Maybe in the affluent area that we live in, maybe your faith is being tested by success. Things are going so well, you are tempted to start putting your hope in those things. God is growing smaller in your mind and success or wealth or power or whatever is growing bigger. That is a test to your faith. And you better believe the Lord will allow those things to come into your life in order to test your faith. He does it because he wants to see you grow. So how are you being tested right now? And I want you to expect the unexpected. I want you to expect the trials to come. The scriptures are full of testimony of that. At one point, it says, consider it pure joy when you are suffering trials. Are you kidding me? Pure joy? Yes, pure joy, because Jesus has the full picture in mind, he's got the end game in mind, and he is going to make you a man or a woman of great faith. That is his agenda, or part of his agenda. And so he's going to bring the unexpected along that will put your faith to the test. So don't be surprised when it happens. Don't be surprised that it's happening now. You are in a school of discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple. You're a student, an apprentice, and you are learning from the master. So one, your faith will be stressed in order to make it better, bigger. The second thing is it will be strengthened by, very, by the very nature of who Jesus is. Now, something that was really cool to me in this passage that I'd never noticed before was in verse 21 and 32, the exact same wording occurs, probably because the sisters had colluded. They were talking in the house. If Jesus had been here, this wouldn't have happened. He could have healed Lazarus. So when Jesus gets there, Martha comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And then when Mary comes to him, she says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. I'd never noticed it before. The exact same wording is in the text. But you know what's so interesting about God? Sometimes we need the son of God. Sometimes we need the son of man. And Mary and Martha are sort of prototypical. One is a heart person. One is a head person. And all of us kind of on that spectrum fall somewhere. We respond to life circumstances more with our heart first or with our head first. And that's just part of God's you know, design, the creativity in which he made, the diversity of people. But being the good shepherd that he is, Jesus knows what we need. And so when he sees Mary, the heart one, she comes and she is just so distraught. She can barely get the words out of her mouth. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And she falls at his feet and starts to just weep. It's not at that point that he should start giving some theological explanation of how he is the resurrection and the life. That's just not appropriate. So what does he do? The shortest verse in the whole Bible is right here. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. And the scripture tells us that he was angry, actually. The word in there is he was disturbed. He was irritated. It, it can even mean, uh, I looked it up in a dictionary, it can even mean like he let out a grunt like an animal. Like he groaned under the pain. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible, it'll, it'll point that out. It, it says he was greatly disturbed. It says it again in verse 38. But the thing about this that's so important is, yes, Jesus will stress your faith to grow it, but he's not cold and separate and sadistic. He doesn't take any pleasure in your pain or our, my pain. When we hurt, he feels that. And so he knew he was about to raise Lazarus back, but what does he do? He just gets frustrated and angry with the whole system. 
Not that they're grieving. He's mad at sin, at the curse, at Satan, at evil, and he's come to do battle. And he goes there with his heart. So one of the biggest objections to Christianity that's out there is God is either uncaring or he's not all-powerful. Because if he cared, then so-and-so wouldn't be sick or wouldn't have died. Or if he's powerful, you know, it's one or the other, right? Well, we can't, no one can answer that question. But what we can do is we can take one accusation off the table. You cannot say that Jesus is not loving. You cannot say that he doesn't care. Because this shows us, and other places as well, that he cares deeply about our pain and it hurts him as well. He is involved in it, and he is not willing to ask, he's not, he won't ask you to go somewhere that he himself isn't willing to go, even to the cross. That's something we see here about God. That's something that strengthens our faith, to recognize that he is the son of man, he's fully human, and he is able to be a great high priest for us because he knows what we're going through. He understands it. And that comforts Mary, that strengthens her faith, that helps her and all that, that are here that are grieving. Now, the head, Martha. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And then she says something else that's a statement, but it's sort of a question. I know that God will give you whatever you ask him. Now, the question that she's asking is this. Will you ask God to bring our brother back? And what Jesus does is he answers that head question with a deep theological truth that he is the son of God. He is divine. He is fully man, but he is fully God. He doesn't have to ask God to do it. He says, I am, which is a reference to God's very nature. I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying within me, I have the power to call your brother back out of the tomb. Do you believe this? And she says, I believe that you're the son of God, which is great. But she doesn't quite get that right here, right now, he has the power in him to say, Lazarus, come out. And he's about to display that to her. And how powerful that is when he does. It changes her. It changes all of them. And it opens their eyes to see, to say, who is this? This is God in the flesh. The son of man and the son of God. And he knows what we need. So... John's gospel starts out in chapter one by saying that Jesus is the eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him. He's far bigger and far more majestic than we think. We start out thinking he's about this big, and the longer we walk with him, we start to see he's really big. And when he calls, when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, you just have to marvel this is the one who created the entire cosmos, and here he is breathing life, just like the Ezekiel Valley, all those dry bones, and he speaks, and they become alive. Jesus is the author of life, it says in Acts. He has life within himself. He is bigger. He's majestic. I love how in the Chronicles of Narnia, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when the youngest child, Lucy, gets there, she's talking to either, you can remind me after, it's either Mr. Beaver or Mr. Tumnus, and hears that there's a lion named Aslan, and, you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. She goes, a lion, is he safe? And the answer is, you know the answer? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And it speaks to how big and majestic he is, but he's also good. 
And I, we, Heather and I were riding back from a, a soccer uh, tournament for LA yesterday, and a song from John Cougar Mellencamp came on the car. It's a small town, and there's a line in there that I've always liked, and Heather pointed out too, that she really likes it. it he says, uh, John Cougar sings, I was taught to fear Jesus in a small town. And that word is so, it was in the psalm, it's all through the scriptures, to, to fear God. Not like lions and tigers and bears, oh my, afraid, but like reverence for his holiness, his majesty, his, the fact that he's emotional, and he, but not out of control, but like he has a powerful disposition against sin. His love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. He hates our sin, and he loves us deeply. And we see that here, and we see something about this Lion of Judah and how powerful he is. And so our faith is strengthened when we recognize that he is human, and he knows what we're going through, but yet he is God, and so he sees the other side of the tapestry. He sees the picture up there that he is putting together. And the loose threads of our lives that look so messy and don't make sense, they don't mean that he's not in control. Quite the contrary. It shows how many things he's pulling together and making this beautiful picture. This is who God is, son of God and son of man. Jesus is that. That is who he is, and it's revealed right here. So you can rest assured that your faith is on a solid rock, that he is trustworthy. He strengthens your faith, but you can also expect that because he loves you, he's going to test you. And I don't know what your test is. I know what mine is currently. I don't know what yours is, but I know that you have one. And maybe you found yourself praying lately, God, take this away, whatever it is. Can I suggest humbly that you would pray, God, help me to learn from this. Make me stronger. Increase my faith. Help me to trust you. Show me your love. Show me your glory. These would be appropriate prayers under that stress. So let's now bring those things to him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is humbling to consider how holy and majestic you are. It will forever grab our imaginations that you, the eternal Son of God, came and became man, and that you were willing to die for us. Lord, would you help us to trust you? As an act of worship this morning, we bring whatever it is that seems so big to us or so challenging, we bring it to your capable hands, knowing that you are good and you are powerful. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.